0: The secret to catching the vervet monkey that lives in East Africa is knowing what it wants. The hunters and trappers that go after it know that its favorite food is this fruit, this melon growing on these trees, and that one of the ways they can trap it is to cut a very small hole in that melon, just big enough for that monkey to squeeze its hand through to reach in there to get all of the the seeds and the fruit that it wants to, to extract and enjoy eating. The problem the monkey has, though, is that once it sticks its hand in that hole and grabs all of the stuff that it wants, that it desires, and makes a fist, it cannot get its hand out of the hole unless it lets go of what it wants, which it refuses to do, and it screeches and screams and howls, and it's so focused now on what it wants that the hunters and trappers come up behind it and catch it the temptations uh, that we have in life have a way of trapping us similarly. The desires and the things we want, we go after and we grab and we we don't want to let go. And before we know it, we've been caught and we have been trapped. You know that. You know that in a very simple way. If you're on a diet, the temptation of that food that is right in front of you, that seems to just always be out during Christmas season. Or if you're a recovering alcoholic, you know the temptation of just one drink. You know the temptation of lust to just one more look at porn. Or the temptation of greed in Christmas season, right? To buy all the stuff that we want. I just need one more thing. I've got to have one more thing. The temptation of that biting word, that cutting comment toward your spouse, your child, or children towards your parents and disrespecting them. All those things that tempt us have a way of catching us and trapping us. And so today in our series, what we're going to do is we're looking at being overwhelmed with temptation, but overcoming that with prayer, being overwhelmed with temptation, but overcoming with prayer. Jesus taught us to pray um, the Lord's Prayer, which we read last week, which we looked at in Luke, and um, we're going to look at just a portion of today, and um, it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Um, and we'll say this Lord's Prayer, and hopefully I won't forget, and I told Jeremy to remind me if I do, but we're going to say it when we take communion. Um, But the end of the Lord's Prayer, you'll remember it starts at the beginning, right? Our Father who art in heaven, it ends this way. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then later in Matthew 26, Jesus is with his disciples in verse 41, and his time has come, and he tells them this. You can put that verse on the screen too. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. One of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, said that he, he, excuse me, that he often felt like he was attacked by the evil one. And he wrote this, and this may be on the slide. I think I made a slide of it he said, we have to watch. We have to watch out so that we may not get weaned from prayer by fooling ourselves that a certain job is more urgent, which it really isn't. And finally, we get sluggish, lazy, cold, and weary. But the devil is neither sluggish nor lazy around us. Right? So I I don't think I really need to state more about that. We know that temptation is a real thing, that, that Jesus says, here's the way to follow me, and that We're constantly tempted by temptations to to go the other way. It's a real battle, and prayer is an important part of that battle. And so I want to zero in on that in two ways. First way is to say that we need to pray to resist temptation into sin. Pray to resist temptation. And so part of that means we have to recognize temptations. Um, You got to know what you're looking for, right, to resist it. I mean, and sometimes it sneaks up on you, but you got to know what you're looking for. One of the things that's important for us to realize is that you're not alone in this. Temptation and sin is part of the world, and what we're told by Paul is that it's common to all mankind that temptations are, and that we should that we should be careful and watch out. He tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Let's put those verses on the screen. It says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So right there you can see those things. You can put that one up if you want. Um, I'll, I'll read it later actually. Hold on to that one for the next, next time. Um, but what he says is no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, right? That's important for us to understand. And if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Be careful. Because you could fall. Right, so it's a common experience and that warning to be careful is to say that it's easy for us to get overconfident. Like, I'm good, I got this. It's easy for us to get overconfident. One pastor has said, the seed of every sin lies in every man's heart. Like, you and I are capable of amazing things, sinful things, evil things. We see it in the world every day. By God's grace, we can resist those we can say no to those things but that seed is in there and if you water that and grow that desire it can lead you in very dangerous directions so you got to be aware of of this overconfidence you need to be aware of it not just for yourself but paul's also talking to the corinthian people who have already fallen into sin and so it's a warning against, against being overconfident in ourselves and our own abilities, but it also helps us in community with one another, right? Because if you're overconfident and you think, well, this is easy, I got this, it's easy for you to look down on others and feel superior when they fall apart and when they trip and stumble into sin. Like, oh, I don't know how you did that. It's not a problem I got, right? But Paul's warning and saying, huh? be careful lest you think you can stand because you too may fall. And that's an important thing for us to understand. It helps us to address how we approach other people. There's three things that you don't know about that person and the battle they went through. One, right? You don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin before actually falling into it. You don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her in that moment of temptation. And you do not know what you would have done in the same circumstances. So don't be overconfident. Be humble in approaching temptation. Temptation. There are obvious temptations that we've pointed out, like pleasure temptations that might be sexual immorality and greediness and, and maybe anger and revenge, wanting to get back at somebody with words on social media or just words straight to their face or, um, you know, full of country songs, keying their car, cutting up their seats, whatever you want to think, right? I mean, so all those things are true, but there's also subtle temptations that are more like pressure points when life gets uncomfortable and it gets hard, and we have to endure suffering and hard times. In those times when it's uncomfortable and things feel risky, what do we do then? What, what is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10 here? He is saying to them that, that Israel fell by worshiping other gods, but it began in the wilderness by their grumbling. Ah, oh, man, we're still in the wilderness. I still got to eat this manna. They're longing for the food from Egypt and the pleasures from Egypt. Couldn't we just go back to have that? And they weren't willing to take the risk and the enduring long journey risk to go to the promised land, and they wanted to go back. That, that grumbling, that complaining was the beginning. It was the subtle beginning of them falling away from God and into idolatry. So how do we go about resisting temptation? I mean, surely it's instructive that Jesus tells us to pray. I mean, right, what we read in Matthew 26, he's with his disciples, he says, watch him pray so that you don't fall. I mean, that's got to be a powerful thing that Jesus is telling us. When we're facing temptation, pray, pray. Don't just get stuck in your own head. Should I? Should I not? Should I? Should I? You know, pray, pray to resist it. The flesh is weak, so there is power in prayer. Put verse 13, if you would, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, back on the screen for us now. In this verse, Paul's following up. He says, no temptation then is, has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide, provide a way out so that you can endure it. Paul tells us two key things there. When you're tempted, there's a way out, there's a way of escape, And pray for that escape. Pray for that way out. God's not going to put you in a situation in which you have no choice. It's either sin or sin. He calls us to do what is right. He's not going to put us in a situation where there is no right choice. And so you're not just stuck. You can't escape. And you have to pray and go, God, show me what the right thing to do is. Lead me in the way of righteousness. What's the right thing, the next right thing to do? Pray for it. Ask for direction. But that verse also tells us that we can endure it. There may be times when there is no apparent right way. Like you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. The right thing to do in that moment is to just endure. To endure until God shows you the step that you are to take, the way out. But you resist and you endure. And God will provide for you. And so praying persistently to endure temptation. When Jesus is with his disciples after the Last Supper in Matthew 26, that's what we read. That was the context there. They've had the Last Supper. They've gone out. Judas has already left the room. They've gone out into the garden and Jesus is gonna go pray because his soul is overwhelmed. He's feeling the weight of what's coming and he leaves his disciples in that moment he says okay watch him pray watch him pray and what do they do they fall asleep then when Jesus gets arrested what do they do they run away and they're not near him and Peter ends up denying Jesus three times not once three times hey do you know this guy now and even coming to the point of calling down curses on himself. No, I, no, I swear, I promise. I don't know him. What they do, the temptation that they miss, is they miss being with Jesus and being part of his mission. They're like, We're all about following you, Jesus, until that point when they were perplexed and didn't understand and like, I don't know, I guess, I guess not. I guess we're not part of this anymore and they walk away from it briefly temporarily the reason that if I may say this the reason that we are repeatedly encouraging you as followers of Jesus to make other followers of Jesus is because that's the mission Jesus gave us that's what those disciples had like you're supposed to make other followers of Jesus it's also why we plant churches because that's a great way of making other followers of Jesus and it's risky And it's something that requires prayer. Prayer, to plant churches, prayer, to be praying for people who don't yet know Jesus and and maybe are curious, maybe they're a bit cynical, but loving them, talking, explaining what it is about Jesus that you believe. And in those moments, we need to watch and pray because Satan loves to target people who are on Jesus' mission with him. Goes after the disciples here in in Matthew 26. And he will go after us when we're on his mission planting churches we need to be prayerful people watching and being on guard so who are you telling about Jesus it's a serious question who are you telling about Jesus i mean maybe you just if you're taking notes you need to write that down like and if you're not telling somebody like who do i need to tell about Jesus put somebody on on your mind to be praying for because that's part of the mission Jesus gives us But let's come back full circle here. So we're praying to resist the temptation of falling into sin. The other side of this is we need to pray to recover from falling into sin. You know, one of the biggest lies that the evil one will tell you when you've blown it, when your past is so dark that you're afraid of it, when you have these regrets, when when you've fallen again into sin, one of the lies that the evil one will tell you is you have failed you are no longer lovable. You're not worth anything. And now that you failed, there's not even really any point in trying to get better. You might as well just quit and give in. Those are all lies. They're lies because that's not at all what Jesus does for us. Jesus says, no, you're loved. You can be forgiven and you can actually be empowered to resist sin in the future. And you're not gonna be perfect until heaven. So this is gonna be an ongoing battle. But in this ongoing battle, when you fight some and do okay, when you lose others, you're not kicked out of the family, you're not lost. Jesus loves you. And that is the motivating power that keeps you going in the fight to recover when falling into sin. I want to have you look with me at Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. I think we have these, yeah, we have these slides too. So it says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Notice what's being said there, right? That that Jesus is the one who has been tempted in every way like we are, he gets the human struggle. And you may say, but no, he doesn't. He doesn't get it because he never sinned. It said he never sinned. That's true, he never sinned. You're like, yeah, but I've sinned a lot. That's also true. Welcome to the club, I do too. You say, well, then how does Jesus understand? Let me ask you this question. You're standing at the Christmas, we're just gonna make this really simple. I'm on a diet, was, Because yesterday, and the day before, I was at two different Christmas parties, and there's food everywhere, and beverages everywhere. Like, I'll just have, like, one plate of food. I did, at a time. One at a time. Just one drink at a time, right? Like, but like, man, okay, I I told myself, no, I'm just, I'm just going to be good, I'm only going to do this. Four pounds later, nope, didn't succeed. Is it more difficult for me to, the day before, prepare my mind and say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, try not to do it, and then fall? Or Jesus for 33 years to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist it. I say no. I say no again. No, I won't do it. To much different temptations. You see, what Jesus had to endure is far greater weight then you and I have to endure because we usually give in and mess up. He knows the full weight of resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting. And that weight is, is a heavy load to carry. But Jesus knows that. He gets your human struggle. When you do fall into sin, Jesus is there to meet you and you need to pray. And you need to pray confessing your sins specifically. When we have this time in our service where we say, Uh, take some time to confess your sins to God, we encourage you to do that, to think, to be thoughtful about it. That is to say, not simply to just go, all right, Jesus, you know, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. But to be thoughtful, like, okay, Lord, show me, reveal to me my sins specifically. Confessing your sins specifically is an important thing to do. Scripture teaches us this in a few different places that I'm not gonna turn to right now. But I want to illustrate why it's important. Dr. Chapel, who was one of Brian and I's professors in seminary, um, tells a story of when he was a boy and, uh, in the house, and his mother used to make homemade pudding. And one day she made pudding, and she went to look at the pudding, and there was a giant thumbprint in the middle of the pudding that somebody had stuck their thumb into. So she immediately calls out to the kids, who put their thumb in my pudding? And all the kids immediately exclaim, not me, not me. So she doesn't believe him, of course. She lines all six of them up, has her tub of pudding, starts walking down, hold out your thumb. Whose thumb fits? And Dr. Chapel Brian is his first name, it was his brother Gordon, got caught. And the reason he tells this story is he says, my mom did that because the whole was the size of the thumb. And the hole demonstrated the dimensions that would be needed to fill it. When you confess your sins specifically, you are making yourself aware, this is the hole that I have. This is the reality and the seriousness of the grace I need. The dimensions of grace required to fill it. When you see that, When you see the magnitude of your sin, you see the magnitude of God's grace. It's not just a general thing. It's it's a real thing in your life. And that touches you in a different way, knowing I am known. When you confess your sin, you're not telling God something he doesn't know. He already knows it all. What you are doing is saying to yourself, I know the reality of what I need. And I need a lot of grace. So pray. Pray. Confessing your sin specifically. Also, pray for greater joy in Jesus than in your sin. We already said Jesus did not sin, and that is good news to us because He is your conqueror. He is the victory. He won the victory. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 goes on to say that that Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What joy set before Him? It's going to the cross. That sounds painful and horrible, and it is. What joy? Commentators talk about that and there's probably maybe a couple different answers to it. But would it be the joy of when this is over, going to heaven again and being with his father and being relieved of that temptation and the suffering of the cross? Yeah, sure. Would it be the joy of the people who he was sent to redeem? The joy of knowing that resurrection would be a reality? The joy of saying my people now can be gathered because redemption Has happened? Yeah. Who for the joy set before him. Knowing the joy of Jesus for you is a greater power that you need to grab hold of in the midst of your temptation, in the midst when you've fallen, to recover from sin. Matthew Henry, a commentator, put it this way. He said, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. Those tastes, right? Those desires. You need a greater affection, a greater taste, a greater desire to see the joy of Jesus for you. One of the Things that I love doing the most is is doing weddings because they're so fun. It's a great celebration. And another occasion when I'm not on a diet. And um, one of my favorite parts about doing weddings is at the beginning, standing at the front with the groomsmen waiting for the, the processional to happen with the bridal party coming in and, of course, the bride coming at the back. And when the bride is ready to come in and the doors open... Everybody stands, right, and turns and looks at the bride to see her in a radiance and brilliance. And in that moment, I love to turn and look at the groom's face and to see sometimes tears, to see that smile, to see the nerves begin to let down, and just to see the joy on the face of the groom when he sees his bride. It's, it's an amazing thing. When you pray, what you are doing is you are turning your face to the groom, to Jesus, the bridegroom who was sent for you, the bride, to redeem you, to come after you and to bring you home. When he sees you, there's joy on his face. There's joy on his face. That Jesus is, is full of great joy. In gathering and redeeming his people. His heart is for you. He is gentle. He is lowly in this way, right? I mean, that's that's that refers to a book that many of us have read. But he is for you. He delights in you. He gave his life for you. That's why he came. It doesn't mean he loves when you sin. No, you shouldn't love your sin. But it does mean he loves you. And then he came to redeem you. To clothe you in white. To bring you to him, making making you clean, baptizing you, forgiving your sins. When you pray and you turn your face to the groom, it is a moment where you find the power of a greater affection than the sin that is drawing you in. It is a battle that you have to turn from your temptations and, and look to the groom's face, but as a thing you need to do. Praying is one of the things that will help you to do that. Praying our Father who art in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Praying even beyond that and focusing on Christ, prayer will help you in that battle. And Christian, you need to know that your failure is not final. It is not the end of the story. It does not mean you are finished because Jesus came born into a manger and then died on a cross and when he did he exclaimed it is finished that means the sacrifice for sin is final it is finished that when you have trusted in him you are united to him and because of that that sin is done your sin past present and future is paid for you are secure you are safe in him So followers of Jesus, you need to hear that. Jesus is your groom. He is your priest. He is your sacrifice. He is your satisfaction. He is the perfect lamb. He is the king who conquered the grave. He is the one who is redeeming the world, making things right. And you are his. He has come for you as you come down that aisle. He has come for you. And you need to see the joy and the delight in his face because it is a greater affection a greater power than the sin that wants to entrap you. Martin Luther, back to that reformer, had a dream in which he saw himself being attacked by Satan. The devil unrolled a long scroll with all of Martin Luther's sins on it held before him. And at the end of that scroll, Luther says to the devil, is that all? And he says, no, it's not. And he pulls out a second scroll with even more condemning stuff. And then a third scroll. And Luther says to the devil, You forgot something. And the devil says, What is that? And he says, Quick, write on each of those scrolls, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from my sin. When we come to this table today, this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder that on your scroll, the bottom of it says, Covered. the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of God's Son, your Savior. And you need to believe that, Christian, because it will bring you great joy. It will give you power to walk in newness of life and to prayerfully resist temptation that comes your way. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be prayerful people, to be able to resist temptation, because we can, Help us to be able to do that. But also, Lord, when we fail, and we will, help us not to be stuck in the mud of our failure, but turn our eyes toward you, our groom, to see the the joy on your face, the love in your heart, your hand extended, saying, come, come to me. Help us to walk then to you in newness of life. Give us greater affections than the sins around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.